You're listening to the Redeemer London podcast. For more information, visit our website at redeemerlondon.org. All right, then, good morning. Uh, So as uh, Pete mentioned, uh, my family uh, just moved from Orlando, Florida to Alabama. Uh, You may have thought I said Atlanta. Maybe that's where we were supposed to go. I'm not sure. Um, But this most recent decision proves yet again that I have no idea how to discern the Lord's will um, to move from Florida to Alabama. But in that move, I've lost a box of shoes. Uh, and I know that because as I was planning for this trip, I was like, where are my nicer shoes? Uh, and like, I can't find them. And so now I'm trying, I'm, I'm sort of remembering, oh yeah, those flip-flops I love are probably in there. Uh, but at any rate, in July we moved, I apologize. This is not like the new trend in the States for pastors and preachers <laughs> to wear dirty white tennis shoes, uh, to preach in. Um, but as, as was mentioned, um, uh, I, I'm, I'm honored to be here. Uh, I, I miss my family. I landed in Dublin. Um, I guess on Monday or Tuesday morning, I kind of lose track, and then I've been spending some time in the UK in various uh, cities with friends, uh, pastors, church planters, church leaders, men and women that I love, and I get to fly home tomorrow. Uh, excited about that. I think on the screen uh, behind me is a picture of our family. Uh, I've been married to Trisha over 20 years. Uh, we have five children, ages 10 to 17, uh, four teenagers, uh, so if you can imagine four teenagers that lived in the same neighborhood and in the same area, going to the same schools, uh, have been asked to move to the armpit of the United States of America, uh, otherwise known as Alabama. Could we start the recording after I finish talking about this? I don't think this is going to be particularly helpful to my future ministry there. Um, But at any rate, uh, the Lord has, uh, we've been talking with uh, a church in Huntsville, Alabama, uh, for a while. It's been my honor and privilege to serve their elders there for some time. And uh, as, fr- as our, our friendship has grown, they've, con- they've asked uh, our family to move there for quite some time. And the Lord just finally said, now's the time. And so we, like many of you, uh, have traveled uh, through a desert and we're trying to get back into a place that, co- that feels like home. Uh, but you could pray for my kids. As you can imagine, it's challenging for teenagers and a 10-year-old to move uh, across the country. Um, so I'm excited about my role there. In my role there, I get to continue on giving 25% of my life to the CBR Journal. So if you'll come tonight, we'll tell you more about that story. Uh, the CBR Journal is the Community Bible Reading Journal, and it was a tool um, that I designed for a, ch- for a church called New City Orlando when Trisha and I were planting that church, and it was much smaller than this here. Uh, and that tool has kind of taken on a life of its own, and tens of thousands of people now Uh, literally around the world, utilize it. And all we've ever done is just respond to people and they say, hey, I've heard about this. Can you help me uh, get it? And so uh, we continue to do that. If you're familiar with that tool and that story, uh, it's basically the same. uh, Steady as she goes, continues uh, to grow. God continues uh, to use it and uh, be delighted to spend time with you uh, this evening in and around uh, the CBR Journal. For this morning, Pete asked me if I would continue on in y'all's series uh, uh, in the marks or the indicators of, the description of a disciple of Jesus. And more particularly, uh, he kind of put it in my sweet spot. He said, I want you to, to talk about reading and particularly reading uh, the Bible. And so what I want to do this morning is I don't want to waste a lot of time saying uh, that, that disciples of Jesus read the Bible. I want to presume that a Bible reading discipline is part of a disciple's life. Instead, what I want to do is I want to give you what I think are three uh, healthy markers of or descriptors of or, or um, uh, 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 characteristics of uh, a Bible reading discipline that we would all want. 
okay? So in this morning, I think it's going to become pretty obvious from the passages we look at that Jesus wants us to have a Bible reading discipline. But more than that, I want to talk about the markers of uh, the indicators of health in that discipline. The very, the very first one, and, and, and we should go through this rather quickly, and by God's Holy Spirit, this passage uh, has already been alluded to this morning. Uh, the, the first marker is daily. The first descriptor of a healthy Bible reading discipline is daily. The foundational passage to go to, uh, to to establish this fact that God wants us to have a daily Bible reading is Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. It's going to be on the screen behind me. It's in your uh, scriptures as well if you want to look it up. And the Lord humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So if you go back and if you think about what was going on in the story at this time, the story of God's people, God had led the Israelites out of slavery in the land of Egypt, and he took them through the Red Sea, and he brought them into the wilderness, and they get into the wilderness, and even if they would have gone straight to the promised land, it would have been months of journeying without food and without water. And so in Exodus, in Exodus 15, 16, and 17, we learn the story of how God provided for his people. First, he gave them water out of a rock just to make sure they knew he was the provider. And when they went into the promised land and there were springs of water, he wanted them to know that he provided those too. So before they get into abundance, he says, in poverty, watch me provide for you water out of a rock. Mm. And then every night, quail would forget how to fly and they would land on the ground. And the Israelites knew what to do with quail. They knew how to cook and eat quail, and so they would make that. But every morning, God said, this is how I'm going to provide for you bread. I want you to go outside the camp, and I'm going to put manna, a thing called manna, a flake-like substance on the ground, and I want you to go out and try to gather an omer's worth, whatever an omer is. It's a size of some sort. Grab an omer, bring it in, put it in a pile, disperse it to everyone, and I'm going to take care of your bread needs that way. Now, as it turns out, instead of a few months, it it ended up being 40 years in the wilderness. And so here, when Moses is saying, the Lord humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, he did that so that you would know, not primarily that you need food every day, and not primarily that he would provide food for you every day, but this, man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. For the first time in God's people's story, they're going to have a Bible. Think about that. Moses writes what's called the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Moses writes that, and it's the first time God's people are going to have a living and active word. It's the first time they'll have scriptures. But before God gives them scriptures, he says, you need a 40-year object lesson. Before I give you my word in written form, I've got to show you how desperately you need this word. That if you think your belly needs bread, and it does, that pales in comparison to your heart's need for God's instruction on life. That if you get a little cranky after not having some food every day, even if you're unconscious of it or underconscious of it, your spirit is cranky when it doesn't have God's word every day. Imagine going to a dietician and saying, tell me the basics about a good diet. And they're like, well, you know, every now and then, maybe once every couple of weeks, pick up some food and eat it. <laughs> the metaphor for Bible reading is eating bread in the morning. 
That's the foundational metaphor in God's Bible. And he says, when you go into the land of abundance, in the land of prosperity, in the land of busyness, in the land where your diaries get really full, I need you to remember these 40 years that what I was primarily teaching you with the manna was not that I'm your provider, although I am. I was teaching you that the great provision I've given to you is my word. And I want you to eat it every day. The first mark of a healthy Bible reading discipline is that it's daily. It's daily. In fact, I would go further to say it's in the morning. There is a constant theme in the scriptures that we need to hear from God. We need him to give us instruction for life. We need him to tell us what's true in the morning. That this will then, in fact, take us into our day uh, with a gratitude and a purpose. The second mark, uh, the second descriptor, the second characteristic of a healthy uh, Bible reading habit is faithful. And I've asked them to put this on the screen spelled faith dash full, not faithful. And the reason for that is in the States, the word faithful has come to mean uh, consistently. The word faithful has come to mean dependable. It's come to mean almost the same thing as daily. So in saying that your Bible reading discipline should be daily, I'm not saying in a second point faithful like I mean consistent. I mean full of faith. A Bible reading discipline that is full of faith is full of faith in God full of faith in his gospel, full of faith in Jesus, full of faith that your sins are forgiven, full of faith that you're righteous in Christ, full of faith that you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, full of faith that God's word is living and active and it can be trusted and it can be depended upon, full of faith. Are you with me? Several years ago, uh, Trisha and I um, decided that it was time for her to go on a holiday with some, some girlfriends, and I would be in charge of the kids, uh, ages 5 and, and up, 5 to 12. And for several days, it was my job uh, to get my two boys and three girls up, somewhat clean. If they could brush their che- teeth, that would be great. Uh, it was my job to make sure um, that, they, that, they, uh, uh, that they had their chores done, that they had their schoolwork ready, that they had their backpacks on, that they had clothes on. And for my youngest son, Liam, uh, we discovered he, he struggled with migraines uh, because he didn't hydrate well uh, and he didn't eat well. And being the fifth child, we love him dearly, but he gets about as much attention as like this box over here. Um, and so... <laughs> And so I realized I was probably braiding hair. I was probably helping someone finish their homework. I, I remembered, uh, oh my goodness, Liam. And so I could hear the TV on. I could hear a cartoonish-like show. So I was like, that's probably him and not his siblings. And, and, then, and then I yelled into the other room. I yelled, Liam, buddy, did you eat breakfast? Moms are like, what a dumb question. <laughs> you don't ask a five-year-old boy, did you eat? You say, buddy, what did you eat for (laughs) breakfast? To my delight, he said, yes, I ate breakfast. Two hours later, the school's called me. "Uh, Your son's sick. Need to come get him. Buddy, what did you have for breakfast? A half a bag of marshmallows (laughs) and two handfuls of candy corn. (laughs) Candy corn is just basic straight sugar. In his mind, the marshmallows were like dairy because they were white. Milk, (laughs) yogurt, marshmallows. Makes sense. And the candy corn was, you guessed it, a vegetable. Corn. (laughs) You see, did you eat is like asking, did you read your Bible? 
that is not a good enough indicator of a healthy uh, biblical uh, Bible reading discipline. The question is, did you read your Bible full of faith? The question is, did you read your Bible trusting in the gospel? Did you read your Bible looking to celebrate the gospel? Did you read your Bible to remember who he is and what he's done and not who you are and what you have to do? You see, that's where satisfaction comes from, is in him and all that he's done. To to show this to you quickly, uh, I would take you to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. In John 5, if you remember what's going on here, Jesus is giving uh, the Jewish leaders a beat down. I mean, he is absolutely undressing them and giving them a very hard time. It's a a long passage where where the Jewish leaders are mad at Jesus for healing an invalid uh, of 38 years on the Sabbath. And they're mad at him because he was basically equating himself with God. And that's another sermon for another day. But what I want to do is I want to isolate verses 39 and 40. And I want to ask, what does this teach us about our Bible reading discipline? That's the angle I want to take on the text, okay? Uh, another, another day would be good for studying the entire context. But just for today, look at what he says. He says, you Jewish leaders trying to kill me more and more. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So think about this. What does Jesus say about their Bible reading discipline? He says, you search the scriptures. This was a word that was frequently used for search parties that would go into the wilderness to look for a lost child outside the city gates to look for a criminal. They were not haphazard in their Bible reading. They were very, very rigorous in what we know from their own writings, a two-hour-long daily Bible reading discipline. And Jesus says, not only are you rigorous in searching out the scriptures, you think that in them you'll have eternal life. He's saying your motivation for going to the scriptures is to earn eternal life. Your motivation in reading is, look at me, God, I'm reading. You should give me eternal life. Your motivation should be, God, show me in the passage what I have to do to earn eternal life. And Jesus says something extraordinary. He, he summarizes all of the Old Testament and says this, they, the scriptures, bear witness about me. Jesus said, anytime you read the scriptures, you should realize they're pointing to me. Anywhere you go in the Bible, you should understand the authorial intent of God is to tell you about Jesus and the salvation you have in Jesus. It is not to tell you what you have to do to be saved. When you go to the Bible, it is not going to tell you what you must do to earn or keep God's love is to tell you what God has already done in his love for you in Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, run to me. He says, the scriptures are about me. Anytime you're in the Bible, come to me. Come to me with my life, death, and resurrection on your behalf. Come to me with grace, the grace and mercy that I have for you. The mercy where you don't pay for what you've done, the grace you get blessed for what I've done. I'm the hero of the Bible, not you. Come to me, not every day, reliably, but every day full of faith in me. I've given a lot of thought to this through the years as uh, the Lord has seen fit to help us help tens of thousands of people read the Bible. I, I have seen two types of people that consistently and sacrificially read the Bible. I've seen these two groupings of human beings who 
who sacrificially, they, they read the Bible instead of doing something else they want and consistently every day read the Bible. The first group of people is desperately seeking to earn God's love. And the second group of people is desperately seeking to enjoy God's love. And so what's quite confusing is they both look the same at six o'clock in the morning. (laughs) But their perspective on the word, what they're getting out of the word, and the joy and satisfaction they have in that day is remarkably different. I want to ask you a question. What do you think is the enemy's number one strategy for you when it comes to Bible reading? So as you think about yourself and as you think about Satan's thoughts on your Bible reading, what do you think is his top strategy? If you think it's for you to be too busy to read your Bible, you're wrong. It's for you to rigorously read your Bible as if you're the hero. Who put Jesus on the cross? Bible readers. Who did Jesus say they they were the sons of? The devil. Think about that. Point one, daily. You can't just say, well, you know what? I don't have a Bible reading discipline at all, so I guess I'll just start with daily. Please don't do point one without point two. I'm not here to get you to check something off the list. In fact, that's quite dangerous for your soul. Going into the Bible... To, to try to think through how you could earn your righteousness is Satan's number one strategy for keeping you from Jesus. May we enter in with faith. An indicator for Bible reading to know if you're coming at it from the first group is do you say, I have to read my Bible? It's something like medicine. It's something like a food ration they give to the military to eat when they're on some sort of expedition. I have to have it. I need some food, but it doesn't taste very good. (laughs) To know that you're beginning to turn the corner and you're beginning to read the Bible full of faith, do you say, I get to read my Bible? (laughs) I get to hear from God. I get to have the living and and active word impact me. I get to celebrate the story of Jesus's life. I get to celebrate the gospel. If you would, I I haven't given this on the screen, but I, I felt compelled and led to read to you Uh, Psalm 90, uh, verse 14. If you have your scriptures or if you have it on your smartphone, uh, you might want to turn there. Psalm 90, verse 14. I I would submit to you that in this text, we're going to see both of the points that we've already talked about this morning, and it's going to lead us into our last point. So this is Psalm 90, verse 14. It says, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Moses does not write, write, satisfy us one morning and we'll rejoice and be glad all of our days. He doesn't say satisfy us on Sunday morning that we'll rejoice and be glad all week. He says satisfy us in the morning, meaning every morning that we may rejoice and be glad every day. But what is he asking for satisfaction in? The unconditional love of God. The steadfast love of God. This word steadfast love is one of the key descriptors of God in the Old Testament. It's the word he gives for his pursuing, his unconditional, his contra-conditional love, that even if his people sin, he will save them. That even if they're faithless, he'll be faithful. The knowing that they can't possibly do what they need to do to save themselves, so he'll do everything necessary to save his people. That's God's steadfast love. 
When the Old Testament, which is written in, in Hebrew, was written uh, into Greek before the time of Christ, uh, the, the, the two words that were used most often for this, steadf- this word for steadfast love, those two words appear in our New Testament and are translated in, into English as grace and mercy. So hesed, translated into the Greek words that come into the English words, grace and mercy. Mercy is you don't pay for your bad Bible reading discipline. Jesus does. Grace is God blesses me as if I love the Bible as much as Jesus. That's the story of the entire Bible. So not only am I encouraging you to have a daily Bible reading, I'm actually begging you to not have a daily Bible reading unless it's a faithful daily Bible reading full of faith. Last for this morning, last for this morning, interpersonal. Interpersonal. Uh, The Bible would urge you to have a Bible reading discipline that is daily, knowing that it is the bread from heaven, that is faithful, uh, knowing that it can be a satisfaction for our soul in the gospel of Jesus, and interpersonal, realizing that a biblical Bible reading discipline is in community. In community. Look with me at the first part of Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Okay, so notice the phrase that Paul is using for the Bible. The message about the Messiah. Okay, that's what the Bible's about. It's the message about the Messiah. And, and, And you notice that Paul is indicating that you and I have some role to play in whether or not the gospel lives in us extravagantly. Okay, he says let or permit, or allow. Allow this gospel, this scripture, this word about the Messiah, let it be in you richly and extravagantly. And so the question becomes, how do I allow it? How do I let it? How do I permit it? The rest of the verse explains, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Paul is assuming that every believer can teach and admonish Paul is assuming that while I can teach and admonish you, I can't teach and admonish me. Paul is saying that we need each other to teach and admonish one another, and that when we teach and admonish one another, we let or permit or allow the word of Christ, the gospel, to dwell in us richly. Think about our brothers and sisters singing and speaking to us this morning. Think about how much more we believe the gospel in the last 60 minutes than we did when we woke up this morning. You cannot grab yourself by the scruff of the neck and say, believe the gospel. I'm sorry, you can't. You must be in community to have other people bear witness to what God's doing in their life for you to realize it is true. He is alive. He is gracious. He is saving us. Isn't this incredible news? You, you cannot, you cannot get the gospel to dwell in you richly by yourself at six, in the, at six o'clock in the morning in your prayer closet. I'm sorry. You can do that in preparation to help others, knowing that they're doing it in preparation to help you, but the word dwells richly in community. You were made in the image of a triune God. God, for eternity past, enjoyed being three in one. And God decided when he made Adam that it was not good for Adam to be alone. It's not a word for lonely. It's a word for alone. 
And he gave Adam Eve, and therein he taught us that as image bearers of him, we cannot do life in independence. We have to do life in interdependence. That I really need you to teach and admonish me while I teach and admonish you. That that is how the gospel dwells in us richly. I want you to notice that sometimes it's going to take some admonishing to get our neighbors to believe the gospel. Isn't it fascinating he doesn't say obey the word of Christ well by correcting one another? He actually says let the gospel live in you extravagantly by correcting one another. Correcting unbelief. When are we supposed to become stern with one another? When we're doubting the promises of God. When we're doubting who we are in Christ. When we're doubting the future we have. It's not a condescending correction. It's a loving correction. You've forgotten who you are in Jesus. Isn't that fascinating? Not just instruct one another's minds, but correct one another's hearts. My uh, second daughter, Riley, was seven, and she came running down the stairs, and she was screaming bloody murder. And uh, usually Riley the one in, is the one in our family that helps others scream bloody murder. And so it was quite odd uh, that Riley was crying. And when we got her to, to relax and chill out and slow down, uh, she, she indicated that her sister, Maddie, eight at the time, had pinched her cheeks really hard. And sure enough, you could look on her cheeks and they were quite red. Uh, there was more than enough evidence for the crime. And uh, Maddie sheepishly came down the stairs. And Maddie was not one to get into a lot of trouble. Uh, and we're like, Maddie what in the world is going on? Why would you pinch your sister's face like this? She goes, Mom, Dad, she's been in front of the mirror for at least five minutes trying to get her hair just right. And I have been telling her for at least five minutes that her hair is fine and she is beautiful and she would not listen to me. And I knew that her day would be great if she would just have somebody else tell them, you're beautiful and it doesn't really matter what your hair looks like. I love you. So she said, I kept telling her and kept telling her and kept telling her and she would not believe it. And so I grabbed her by the shoulders, I turned her around, I pinched her cheeks and I said, you are beautiful. (laughs) And while the pinching is ill-advised, that's admonishing one another in the gospel. You do have a call on your life. You do have the blessing and favor of God. You do have a glorious inheritance. You you do have a faithful, gracious, merciful God who is not tired of you and will never get tired of you. You can't do anything to get him to love you less. You cannot be taken out of his hand. You are secure. He's got an extraordinary mission that only you can do. We need one another to grab each other by the shoulders and say, hey, take your eyes off yourself. Put your eyes on Jesus and what he's done for you. And that's the story of the Bible. And we need to hear that every day. Let's pray. Most gracious God and Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time with my friends. I'm reminded from worship that you do great things and you do great things through great sinners like us. And that is even more glorifying to you that you would use great sinners to do great things because of your great love. May we run to you in repentance and just say, we're big sinners. We have made a big mess of our life. We have been quite rebellious. We've been quite proud. But in your grace, you can use people like us to bring your kingdom to bear in London, in Ealing, in our homes, 
in, in the UK, uh, around the world. We praise you. We praise you that the story of your scriptures is not a long list of what we have to do, but it's an incredible story of what you have done, are doing, and will do by grace through Christ. Give us all faith. Give us all joy. Give us all hope. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.